Hi, this is Colin McCallan. Thank you for listening. Please help us out by leaving us a five-star review and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you. Welcome to Is This Legal? Here are your hosts, attorneys Colin McCallan and Russell Hevitz. Hi there, everyone. My name is Russell Hevitz, and I'm here with my partner, Colin McCallan. Say hello, Colin. Hello, everyone. And we're here for This Is This Legal Podcast. We realized we have never, ever covered the Supreme Court before. Wow. And it's just the most important court in the country. Shame on us. So shame on us. But today we're going to cover and talk about all things Supreme Court and give you guys a bunch of little tidbits that you never knew before. And we are also going to be periodically through this episode dropping some little trivia questions for you. So if anyone is listening with other people, get ready on your buzzers. We're ready for our first question, right? Let's kick it off uh, right away. All right, first question, hot off the presses. Who, ladies and gentlemen, was the first woman, the first female member of the Supreme Court? We'll give you a few seconds to think about it. And answers, please. All right, the answer is drum roll. Sandra Day O'Connor. Hey, come on down, Sandra. Yep, she was a Reagan appointee. Uh, it only took about 200 years for a woman to uh, land on the high court. That happened in 1981. Yep, almost just under 200. Yeah, but um, she was the pioneer. So, uh, yes, the Supreme Court. Highest appellate court in the land. That means that if you've received a decision from the United States Supreme Court, that is the last decision that will be issued in that case. It is a court of last resort. Right, Russ? That's right. That is the end of the road. You don't have any other recourse. Whatever the court says goes. And so that, that's, that's where we are with the, with the Supreme Court. So let's talk a little bit about how the Supreme Court was formed. The Supreme Court was formed way, 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 way back in 1789, and it got its power through Article 3, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution. Yeah. It really, though, became extremely powerful uh, after it ruled on probably one of the most important Supreme Court decisions ever. Uh, In the case of Marbury versus Madison, we go back to 1803. John Marshall was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And in that decision, what made that such an important decision is uh, Marshall, in the opinion in that case, basically created the role of judicial review for the court. Um, You might have heard that term, but essentially what it means is the court uh, recognized in that decision that it had the power to declare a legislative or executive act, either constitutional or unconstitutional. And uh, you might say, well, hasn't that always been the case? Now, before 1803, basically once Congress passed a law or once the president issued an executive order, that was unchallengeable. So, for example, legislature, Congress back then could have said, if you're not a landowner, you're not allowed to vote. 
and all these non-landowners would have had no recourse, right? Exactly. Until 1803, when John Marshall wrote his opinion and basically said, no, actually, the Supreme Court decides ultimately uh, what what the law is and what it's not. And, and unless unless it passes constitutional muster, it will be struck down. I mean, isn't that like the classic, classic example of like the fox guarding the hen house? I mean, the Supreme Court is giving the Supreme Court the power to overturn legislation. I think that's one way to look at it, but I view it differently because the Constitution never gave that power to the Supreme Court in the first place. I mean, the Supreme Court was just basically this large appellate court that would hear cases. It, it, it was never really seen before Marbury, Marbury versus Madison as being a check on the other powers of, go, of government. I think I think they basically equalize themselves in a way with that opinion. So, but nevertheless, well, in, that is the opinion that basically created their power. And in any case, it's I think we can agree it's a good thing that there is that check yes. on the other arms of yeah, government. Absolutely, right? because it, without without it, an individual who is adversely, perhaps unconstitutionally affected by a law would have zero recourse to do anything about it. All those non-landowners I just talked about. Exactly. So. Now they can vote, thanks to you, Russ. Thank, well, I think if, I feel like it's really thanks to the Supreme Court, but I'll take it. Yeah, I'll give you, I, mean, I just want to so give you any credit. fan mail comes to me. Russell Habits. <laughs> so um, let's talk basics, Supreme Court. Uh, we got nine justices, and by the way, I use the word justices, not judge. <laughs> Which is the, hilarious. The, these guys get their own title. Um, so the, they are justices. Uh, the number actually fluctuated for about 100 years in terms of how many were on the court from anywhere from 5 to 10. But after the Civil War, uh, that number was solidified at 9. It's, it's funny. It started off at 6, yeah. which, like, any even number makes no sense to me because you would have so many, I would think, there's so much potential for ties. Right. Well, let's talk about that, Russ. Uh, I mean, if can, can they issue opinions if they don't have an odd majority? They absolutely can, and they do. It happens through those periods when it was even, because it started off as six, and there's right. other periods it was ten for a little while. It happens when a justice recuses him or herself. So, for example, you know they're making a decision about a company where one of them owns stock. Right. right? They have to recuse themselves. They're interested in that, so they can't make a decision on that. So when those come out... The tie goes to the lower court. That's right. The, the, so the, whatever the decision was at the lower court that is being appealed, that decision would stand. Now, um, we recently actually saw this uh, when Justice Scalia passed away. Uh, after he died, there was a vacancy for like a year where there were only eight justices, and there were several four-four opinions that came out during that period. Right. So it's somewhat impractical to have uh, an even number of justices. It seems to make more sense and, and more efficient to to have an odd number. But uh, the number is nine. You have to have six though for a quorum. Uh, there have to be six judges. So uh, so you couldn't case. you couldn't have five recuse themselves. Exactly. Yeah. They th that wouldn't work. So uh, other basics on the court. Um, there are about seven to 8,000 cases that are filed with the Supreme Court every year. Guess, guess how many actually make it to the briefing stage slash oral argument stage, Russ? I looked this up, so I'm cheating, so I know. <laughs> but um, I believe it's 100 to 150 of those seven plus thousand. That's right. And that's, right. that's 1.5 to 2%. Yeah. That's that's what that comes to. So so in order to get to the Supreme Court, you know, you have 7,000 plus 
people or litigants who want the Supreme Court to decide their issue, they're unhappy with their decision, and they're saying, please, police, Supreme Court, help us settle this once and for all. And Supreme Court, for about 99% <laughs> of them, says, you're yeah, out of luck. Yep. Hit the road. Chunk. Exactly. And, and, and think about that, because... I mean, most of those cases that actually get that far have been under litigation for years, years. and years. And they've, 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 there have been rulings in lower courts. You know, so it, it, it can take a while for all of this to meander up to the Supreme Court if you're lucky enough to be one of those 1% of cases that actually make it into their door. And here's how they decide which of those cases to take. They're looking for cases that have national significance. Okay, right. They're looking for cases that reconcile conflicting federal appellate court decisions. So if you have a, a federal appellate court in California that issues a ruling that's binding in that district, and then you have a district in New York who issues a different decision on the same topic, like those two are still good laws. Yeah, that, we call that a circuit split. Right. And so the Supreme Court is... Some, sounds like a circus split. It's like uh, something a trapeze artist would do. Right, only it's not. Uh, right. there's, it's legal. And, um, it's legal in a circus. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, the, the court will take that issue up so that it has uniformity across the board. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it generally takes the most important cases right. uh, going on in the world, things that have far-reaching impact for all of us. Uh, often these are politically charged decisions. We've seen this actually lately, just in the last few weeks, what the court has been doing. So, you know, it, it's got to be pretty important, pretty significant to make it to the Supreme Court. So, Colin, how does the Supreme Court decide which cases make those... 150 that they're actually going to rule on. All right, you ready for a little Latin, Russ? I love I love Latin. It's actually my second language. Okay, really? I, I was actually well, it's actually my first, but I haven't spoken it in a while. I was raised Latin. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling you're joking with me right now. Yeah, I feel like it's a dead language, so I am joking. I'd have to be pretty old for that well, to be the case. You, you've got to brush up in law school anyway, because uh, Latin's all over the place, and. One Latin term that is used in Supreme Court parlance is something called a writ of certiorari. And this is basically the key for someone to get in the Supreme Court. Uh, what will happen is someone files a brief at the Supreme Court saying, please hear my case. They file a writ. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, uh, the justices are really more realistically, their law clerks are, are monitoring all of these cases and they will make recommendations to the justices about which cases they take. And then the justices meet regularly. They have these things called conferences. Um, they have them on a weekly basis and only the justices are allowed in the room and they decide what cases they're going to take. So, so before we go any further with there, I want to touch on how those cases come in in the first place, because I, I just love the, the term. It just brings such, such an interesting visual. They all go into a certiorari pool. A cert pool. A cert pool. Yeah. Exactly. So, like, I picture just a big swimming pool with a bunch of pieces of paper within each <laughs> and, of them. And the law clerks are just <laughs> picking them out and saying, oh, this looks important, this looks important. All of them get reviewed. I mean, with seven, 8,000 cases, that's a lot of work, but they all do get reviewed. And what happens is there's this thing called the rule of four. If four of the nine justices agree to take up the case, then that case will be heard. So it doesn't even require majorities. Four justices have to agree to hear the case. It can be more, uh, but that's what we call the rule of four. And so if the court decides not to take up a case, 
That's what we call a denial of cert, right, Russ? That's right. What happens with the what happens with the denial of cert? With the denial of cert, whatever the lower court decided stands. Exactly. So, Supreme Court is not going to take up the issue. Whatever the lower appellate court said about it is deemed to be good law, and that is precedent, and that is the law of the land until and unless a new case brings up that issue and Supreme Court then decides we're going to bring it up. You know, it's, it's tough to overstate the importance of these law clerks. We've mentioned them. Each justice gets three to four law clerks. And these are generally these are generally recent graduate from the, like the best Usually law Harvard schools. or Yale. Yeah, exactly. Best law schools in the country, top of their class. They were just law review. All, they, yeah. all the accolades that they could have gotten. They usually also have at least one federal clerkship already under their belt for right. a lower court. Well, yeah, the, the justices don't want someone who doesn't know what they're doing, right? right? They don't right. want someone fresh, fresh out of law school. And, and those guys are the ones who review, to a large part, these 7,000 cases. And they just write up a brief memo on it, give it to their justice, and then those memos are shared with the other ones. And that's when they say, okay, if we hit the rule of four, we're going to hear that case. Yep. But yeah, that denial of cert is a really big deal because that lets all the litigants know in the lower case, you're done. Uh, right. Whatever that lower case ruling is, if, if you're on death row, going to be executed and the Supreme Court doesn't take up your case, that's the end of the road. No, now that road is a long road. Like, it takes a long yeah. time to get there, right? People have been sitting on death row for decades. So, um, I think we're ready for another trivia question, by the way, Russ. Yeah, let's do it. What do you got? I have question number two. Who was the only Supreme Court justice, in fact, Chief Justice, who was also President of the United States. Ooh. Now, now, not at the same time. <laughs> that might be a conflict. <laughs> that could of be a conflict, although you'd get some things done for sure. <laughs> like, imagine if Trump was the chief justice right now, and and like the majority whip. <laughs> right. I mean, that would be. I mean, yeah. We, Things would just be moving at rocket pace right now. If All that right, the so, case. so as we've been entertaining yourselves, you guys should have your answers in. And the answer is... William Howard Taft. There it is. He was uh, president... Oh, what was it? I think I wrote it down. President in 1909 to 1913. And then uh, took a little break. <laughs> Don't know what he was doing in the meantime, but uh, he became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court from 1921 to 1930. What a career, huh? What a career. Yeah, so if anyone got that, that's... That's, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's a tough one. Um, that's obscure, so give yourself a big pat on the back if you got that one correct. Now, let's uh, so let's look at those cases that make it all the way. So you've gotten your writ of certiorari granted, so that means that the Supreme Court is going to take up your case. Uh, how does that work? Well, first, there is a briefing stage. Basically, uh, just like really any appellate court, the parties are going to be required to brief the issue. Uh, they can't go too long. There are limits about that. And then after they, uh, the parties brief the issue in written form, there's going to be oral argument, which takes place in Washington, D.C. at the United States Supreme Court building. It's open to the public, and arguments are heard uh, for each case. Each case gets one hour, which is really not a lot. That is a tiny amount of time for and, and, the seriousness yeah. of these cases. And think about this. Each side only gets 30 minutes to argue, and if you've ever listened to Supreme Court argument or seen it on video... 
you're going to see that really those lawyers are not arguing. They are answering questions right. of the justices. Because at that point, the justices have read the briefs. Right. They've read the uh, lower court ruling. And so they, they just want to use that time to answer their questions that they've formed. So it's not it's not letting litigants rehash their position. It is like, okay, you're on a hot seat for half an hour. So, I mean, from the, from the attorney's perspective, maybe it's good it's only half an hour. Right. <laughs> exactly. So um, they have these oral arguments, and, and often the justices might signal how they're going to rule based on some of the questions that they're asking. Uh, you know, the press pays attention a lot to that. Uh, but uh, then after oral argument, um, there's a decision that has to be made, right? And so the way that happens is uh, these justices go back to conference. And uh, again, the only people allowed in this conference are the nine justices themselves. Their clerks are not allowed. No staff, no nope. police, no secretaries. Exactly. No and so the, there's a preliminary vote that's tallied. So, you know, they're like, okay, as to this decision, where does everybody stand? And after that preliminary vote, the most senior justice in the majority, siding with the majority opinion, will assign uh, the opinion writing to one of the justices. He can assign it to himself if he wants. Um, but some, you know, th that's how that's going to happen. And then the other justices can write concurring opinions or they can write dissenting opinions. Well, the dissent, again, dissent's done the same way, where the most senior justice right. in the dissent decides who writes the dissent. Right. And, and although any justice can write their own dissenting opinion if they choose. Let, let's cover this for a quick second. There's three types of opinions. There's the majority opinion. That's the opinion of the court. So if there's nine justices, at least five of the justices are going to be issuing the majority opinion. But then there's a concurring opinion. That's where a justice is joining the majority and saying, we've decided this case correctly, but I think that it was a different rationale that led us there. And right. here's the explanation. Um, and then there's finally the dissenting opinion which is essentially the, the justice who disagree with the majority view, they're allowed to write their own opinion expressing why they disagree with it. Important to note here, the only thing that's binding uh, in the future is the majority opinion. Uh, con what, what you find in the concurring opinion and the language that's in the dissenting opinion, that is not legal binding authority. That's really just, it's, it's a way for these justices to get their, get their grievances off their, their, their chest. Right. They, they, they want to say, we should have decided it a different way, and here's the legal rationale for that other way. But it's not binding. Now, people still cite it. Lawyers yeah. still cite dissents because it's still a Supreme Court justice. Right. It's still their, their opinion, and it still carries some weight, but not legal authority, not precedential authority. And by precedent, we mean things that lower courts have to follow under the law. Right. Okay, so switching gears for a minute, uh, how does a Supreme Court justice become a Supreme Court justice? Where does that start, Russ? So with all the publicity that have been surrounding a lot of recent Supreme Court nominees, people probably know this, but Supreme Court justices are appointed by the president, by the commander-in-chief. And once he or she appoints a Supreme Court justice, that's not the end of it. That person still has to be confirmed in the Senate. Now, the House of Representatives, they have no, no part in this. They have no authority. They have no action to take. It's all in the Senate. And the Senate has to confirm that appointee by a majority. That's correct. By a simple majority. Right. Um, so that's, that's exactly right. And then removal 
uh, of a Supreme Court justice. They can't be removed, can they? (laughs) (laughs) Believe it or not, they can. Um, It has actually never happened in the history of the Supreme Court, but it's just like a removal of the presidency. A a Supreme Court justice can be impeached. And it's impeachment. And, And that's where the House of Representatives actually starts proceedings. They can impeach, and then the Senate can remove the person from office. And that has never happened in the United States Supreme Court history. In the history of the Supreme Court, how many justices have had an impeachment begin? One. One was impeached, but he was later removed. I I, I saw it. He wasn't removed. Was not removed, yeah. And it happened like 100 years ago. I don't even remember the guy's name. But it has, that happened one time. He's the Andrew Johnson uh, of the Supreme... Well, I guess Bill Clinton, Donald Trump. I guess it's happened... uh, Nixon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Plenty of precedent for presidents, right? (laughs) Right, right. Uh, Not not, for Supreme Court justices. So so let's let's talk then about checks and balances. Right. I mean, so we got the executive, the judicial, and the legislative branches, and they all check each other, right? Um, We see that in terms of how Supreme Court nominees are picked and confirmed, Uh, We see that in terms of how they're removed. We also see that in the powers that they exercise. For example, the Supreme Court can check the power of the the presidency, right? Right, absolutely. They can check the power of the presidency. They can check the power of the legislature. Exactly. And so, um, and, and of course, the legislature also, they can get around an adverse Supreme Court decision by making an amendment to the Constitution. So if the Supreme Court says, hey, the law that you enacted here is unconstitutional, the legislature can take that guidance, create a new law that doesn't run afoul of the Constitution. Right. So there's there's a bunch of different ways that all of these um, these bodies kind of check each other. So with those checks and balances, Colin, I mean, how do we keep the Supreme Court from being just a bunch of political lackeys? <laughs> right. That's and that's the ultimate question, right? We we hear terms. Uh, wherever we get our news, like judicial activism, like that's an activist judge, or uh, judicial restraint, that judge is a a strict Strict conservative. Strict construction. Right, right, right? exactly. Um, You know, they have these monikers for justices like this. And I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know how the court doesn't get political just because of the cases that they have to take up. Well, they're clearly deciding on political hot-button issues. I mean, what we told you earlier, one of the reasons why they accept a case is because it has national right. significance. Yeah, they're not they're not they're usually not picking cases that that only affect like one right. party. It, it, and, and they're not picking vanilla cases. Right. You know, you don't see it's very rare to see like unanimous decisions. Right. In fact, it's very, very seldom happens. Mm-hmm. So these are issues that have two sides to them. Right. And they can be argued both ways. But I think if you're a purist, you, you know, you are kind of wanting as an ideal the Supreme Court to be as politically neutral as possible. I want that. Whether or not that's practical uh, or possible just in the in, in, in the current world we live in, I don't know. But it is supposed to be an ideal world, you know, free from those types of biases. So, so let's, they do some things. The Supreme Court as an institution does some things to try to keep it very collegial, right? To keep it very friendly. And one of the things that has always been the case is when they're at these conferences where no one else is allowed in, it's just the justices. First thing they do when they go in 
is what, Colin? They shake each other's hands. They shake everyone's hand. Yeah. Every justice shakes every other justice's now, hand. Now, I don't know if that's going on in the time of COVID. Well, I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, probably a lot of elbow bumps. I, do you think they're all wearing masks? Or do you think there's like a five-force for That's <laughs> just the, the conservatives wearing masks. The liberals are not. And maybe, you know, Justice Roberts, who's been going both ways lately. <laughs> Someday he'll wear masks. Sometimes, sometimes he won't. Who knows? He's maybe wearing a mask with a bunch of holes in it. <laughs> but yeah, they, they, they really, they, there are, are a lot of actual uh, traditions that they have to try and get along with each other. They right. have to do business. They have to work together. Um, sometimes they work against each other. Uh, that's just but, kind of the nature of the business. But there's respect. There there's is. respect built into it. Like another thing is, in these conferences, when they're basically arguing their position on the case, they get they go from senior mm-hmm. to least senior. They take Seniority turns. is very important on the court. That, that determines where they sit on the bench. Oh, real quick. So we can interject this right here. Chief Justice, who is the head of the Supreme Court, is not decided by seniority, is it? That's correct. That's a, that, that is a presidential appointment. So the president is the one who decides who the chief justice is. Well, it, it, it happens where the chief justice is replaced by the new chief justice. So if the chief justice retires or dies, then the next appointee is by virtue of that seat being opened, the new chief justice. Right. I, I believe that's correct. So, uh, yeah, you don't earn that spot by working your way up the ranks in the Supreme Court. John Roberts, for example, our current chief justice, he was an appointee by George W. Bush. He had never been on the court before he became the chief justice. He's certainly not one of the most... I wonder what that's like. Uh, hi, guys. I'm John Roberts. I was just confirmed a day ago. Um, <laughs> hey, you all have to listen to me. Hey there, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I know you've been on the court for about 20 years, but... Um, Thomas, what I say goes. Like Tuck that shirt years. in. Thomas. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, that that's how the chief justice works. But where I was going, it goes in level of seniority with the chief justice beginning, whether or not he or she is senior. And then they each get to talk about the case uninterrupted. So they cannot, it's not arguing. It's not um, an interjection with other points. It is you get your stage to talk to the other eight justices without interruption. That's correct. You don't want to interrupt another justice. Um, anyway, let's. Uh, we're going to wrap up here. We're going to talk about uh, the current justices on the Supreme Court, and then we got one more trivia question we'll leave you with. I can't wait. So current justices, uh, take a moment right now. How, how many uh, listeners, how many justices in the Supreme Court you think you can name off the top of your head? Um, I will tell you, this is hard for even lawyers. I'm saying the over-under out there is four. Yeah, I, I, yeah. If, you, if you can name four or more, you're in pretty you're, good shape, I you think. You are. Um, some people can't name one. So, uh, But here they are, the current justices of the United States Supreme Court as of July 1st, 2020. Uh, we got our Chief Justice, John Roberts. He was a George W. Bush appointee from 2005. Uh, then in terms of seniority meaning we're going to start going uh, from the, the longest tenure justices. We have Justice Clarence Thomas, appointed by George Herbert Walker Bush, 1991. We've got RBG, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the notorious RB, RBG, as she's sometimes known. Uh, she was a Clinton appointee in 93. Uh, then Justice Stephen Breyer was uh, subsequently appointed by Bill Clinton in 1994, uh, then we, uh, Roberts in time was actually appointed in 2005, but uh, we've talked about him. We have Justice Alito. He was also an appointee of George W. Bush in 2006. 
Russ, where do we go then in the Obama administration? We have Sotomayor, who was appointed by President Obama in 2009. First Latina justice, uh, Sona, on, Sonia on Sotomayor. On the Supreme Court in 2009, exactly. Yep. Then we have Justice Kagan, appointed by Obama in 2010. Fun fact for all you listeners out there, in preparation for this Colin quizzed me on the current Supreme Court justices, and I, for the life of me, could not remember Kagan's name, Justice Kagan's name. I knew exactly. You know her first name? Elena, right? There you go. Yeah, Elena Kagan. Then uh, then we have Trump's appointees. We have Neil Gorsuch. He joined the court uh, on in 2017. And then Brett Kavanaugh is the most recent Trump appointee. He barely got confirmed uh, back in 2018. Just barely hit that majority. And so that's the current makeup of the court. Um, we're, and- we're going to, by the way, now that everyone out there has such a solid basis, I mean, you're all basically Supreme Court scholars by now, but we're going to do some uh, upcoming podcasts on current Supreme Court decisions because they're in session right now and we are having cases come out almost daily. Now, they're a little bit delayed because of COVID, um, but we're having a bunch of cases come out. And by the way, they may have made these decisions months ago, right? That's right. They they do not have to... There's no timeline in terms of when they issue their opinions just as long as it happens before the end of their term. Their term lasts from the first Monday in October to... (laughs) The Sunday before. Right, the the Sunday before, exactly. But they're not in session usually for the summer, although they're working now because they were um, extended from COVID. So um, normally they're off right now partying, but not this year. I mean, can you imagine those parties? (laughs) Wow, man. An RBG. What what stays in the Supreme (laughs) Supreme Court Court conference room, right? (laughs) What happens stays. Exactly. All right, final, final quiz question. Let's hear it. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you throw this one out there. All right. Can anybody out there name the first African-American Supreme Court justice? Go. Drum roll. It is. Cla- Just kidding. Those people who guess <laughs> Clarence Thomas, you're wrong. Thurgood Marshall. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't have the year he was appointed. I believe it was in the late 60s, early 70s. He was a civil rights lawyer. That, that's right. And um, was, uh, was eventually appointed. But yes, he was the very first African-American to join the court. So um, there you go, folks. There's a little bit of uh, knowledge we've just dropped for you on the United States Supreme Court. Uh, of course, if you have any questions for us, please send us a tweet at IsThisLegalPod. Find us on our pa- Facebook page at Hebbets McCallan. Uh, and uh, let us know what you think. If you have a few minutes to kill, check us out at isthislegaltv.com where we just do about two-minute Q&As on some common questions, and we're constantly updating content there. That's right. In the meantime, stay safe, and we'll catch you on the flippity flip. You've been listening to Is This Legal? See you next time.